Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Caring for nature is not Australia's strength. The latest comprehensive assessment of the health of Australia's ecosystems published in Science Journal bears this out again. It shows that across the country, the situation facing animal and plant species is dire. Uh, But there is hope, according to our next guest, uh, amongst the really... um, Terrible statistics, unfortunately. Um, Professor John Wynarski is with Charles Darwin University and a member of the Biodiversity Council, which brings together leading Australian experts who are trying to raise awareness of Australia's biodiversity crisis and promote evidence-based solutions. And it's really great to have you there, John. Good morning. Uh, Good morning, Kalia. And uh, Australia is attracting global attention again because of a dismal performance in caring for nature. Can you sort of explain where we're at with biodiversity impacts at the moment? Yeah, look, Australia's got marvellous biodiversity. It's got really unique, a whole lot of endemic species that occur nowhere else. It's really an important part of our country and defining us as Australians. Um, But the state of our biodiversity is deteriorating fairly rapidly at the moment. For example, we've had far more extinctions of mammal species than on any other continent over the last 200 years. Uh, the number of threatened species is increasing. Um, the number, the population size of those threatened species continues to decline on the whole. Um, we've got ecosystems that are collapsing. And this has been going on for decades, um, but the rate of loss, the extent of deterioration is accelerating over recent decades as particularly as climate change is um, exacerbating a whole range of other factors that are affecting our biodiversity. And so you've conducted a review of Australia's biodiversity loss. I wonder if you can explain how we currently monitor biodiversity. I mean, do we have a holistic kind of overarching view of this? Yeah, unfortunately we don't, Dylan. Um, It's fairly piecemeal in terms of monitoring of biodiversity across Australia. Uh, There are many species that we don't know that population trajectories. There are many species that we haven't even described or discovered yet in Australia, particularly for invertebrates. Um, There's a whole lot of knowledge gaps in our treatment of biodiversity, but that's only one of the problems. You know, there's many other problems as well. Our legislation is poor and inadequate. The resourcing is inadequate. Uh, We don't really care enough as a country, as a society, about our nature, which is problematic because we really depend upon our natural systems for our health, for our livelihoods. And when we do speak to people in Australia, when there's surveys done, people say, you know, climate change is right up there with what people are worried about. And I think there's growing awareness of invasive invasive species, habitat loss, um, fire and altered fire regimes, all these things that have impacted on biodiversity. Why do you think the sort of care doesn't turn into caring, uh, John? Yeah, it's a great question, Carrie, and it's really hard to answer. You know, all Australians, I think, uh, love their nature and regard our environment as really important in our lives and for our health and economy. Um, We can still see trees and birds and sort of various other natural features, but we don't really, most people don't really understand the deterioration around them, the fact that what we're seeing is uh, a, a sullied representation of what the country was like. 200 years ago, it's, it's partly it's a thing called the um, the shifting 
baseline phenomenon, what we see now is not really what it was 100 years ago, so we accept what it is today as normal. In fact, it's um, a far, far tarnished and degraded um, environment compared to what it was like uh, 200 years ago. And the until recently, I guess the pace of change has not really been apparent to, a, to most of our society. But it's factors such as the Black Summer wildfires that have really, I guess, caused people to sit up and take notice that we are losing biodiversity at a substantial rate, and that rate is likely to increase. So I think it's becoming more evident to most people in our community that um, what we have in terms of our nature is fragile and really worth fighting for. We tend to latch on to particular creatures when species loss and and, um, and the like kind of enters the, the public debate, such as koalas. And, you know, there are obviously those highly emotional images of, of koalas struggling amid bushfires and, and that sort of thing as well. But, I mean, there are many other sort of plant and animal species that are, that are threatened have been declining in numbers over the years as well. What are the kind of flow-on effects or implications of declining biodiversity for our sort of ecosystem and broader planetary health. Yeah, you're right, Dylan. We concentrate particularly on those flagship species like koalas, and despite all the effort that's being put into koala conservation, um, the populations of koalas continues to decline across most of the range in Australia. So even the flagship species are doing badly, but let alone the um, species that most people don't really know about or care about. So those black summer fires we know uh, cause the extinction of at least one invertebrate species and probably very many more, but most people, you know, that was under the radar. We don't really um, understand, know or care about um, so much those uh, less well-known, less charismatic species. Um, what will it mean to us if we um, lose, continue to lose parts of our biodiversity? It will mean that we'll pass on to our descendants a world which is much more tarnished, much less precious, much less healthy, much less beautiful, much less diverse than that world that we've inherited also mean that the health of our systems, the resilience of our systems will be far less good than, than what it should be. So it's far more likely that there'll be less productive systems, so we'll, our agriculture will decline, um, our, our health and standard of living will decline, the quality of life, the quality of water. All of these factors depend upon the, the integrity of the natural systems and we're losing that integrity at the moment. We're speaking with um, Professor John Wynarski from Charles Darwin University about a study uh, published in Science having a look at Australia's biodiversity loss uh, and it, well, biodiversity full stop and then the loss is unfortunately among the worst in the world and predicted to accelerate. And I did promise some hopeful messages in this um, John, and I, I guess with the younger generation, she just said that, you know, what, what we're passing on potentially is just going to be a, a diminished version of today, which um, you've pointed out, we've also shifted the baseline on that. So this kind of erosion of what we think of as is good is, is there as well. But we do owe some hope to the next generations. And one of, um, I mean, you do make sure in the science um, journal article that we do point out some hopeful messages. One is that as a continent nation, we actually do have a lot of control and power using legislation, policy, management responses. We don't need to necessarily negotiate so much with, with neighbouring countries. Can you sort of talk to the opportunities there? Yeah, look, we should be in a great position. Australia is relatively affluent. Uh, we don't have a huge population density. We are one nation, um, although the, the um, Federation makes that sometimes complicated in terms of environmental law. Um, 
And we do value our biodiversity, so we should be doing better than many countries in the world, but we're not. Um, and there's room for improvement, and that's, we've got to take that opportunity um, now, because if we don't take it now, we're living in momentous times, I think, in terms of being able to act in, in terms of, uh, to maintain and preserve and restore our biodiversity. Um, so we do need to do more than tinkering around the edges with um, the current environmental legislation changes that are underway at the moment. We need transformative change in the way our legal system works. We need to have nature at the centre of our legislation and, and the way we're living in this continent. Um, we do have the capacity to do that, but it's just a matter of whether we have the will to do that and whether we care enough about what future we have pass on to our descendants. And in terms of, uh, you know, I mean, this article paints a pretty grim picture, but there are some success stories in conservation in Australia as well. I wonder if you can just sort of touch on any particular examples and, and what we can take from them and potentially scale up to address this biodiversity crisis. Yeah, the most inspiring example that we have is in the restoration across much of Australia or the maintenance and support in, across much of remote and regional Australia of Indigenous land management um, and the proportion of Australia which is undergoing um, intensive and intricate management by Aboriginal people um, is increasing substantially. And there are many lessons from um, passing on that knowledge about how First Nations people have traditionally managed, looked after this country, cared for a country, and how um, their livelihoods and lives are centred on the caring for our country and our nature. Um, we all need to learn those lessons. We all need to respect the way Aboriginal people have long looked after this country and managed it and prepared to ensure that they pass on um, in a continuous chain um, the, the responsibility for looking after nature. So I think that's one really inspiring lesson and one hope for the future, that we are beginning to understand that there are better ways of managing this country and the expertise is there amongst First Nations people. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us this morning, John. And um, people can go and read your study in science and there's some um, good summary articles as well if you don't want to dig right in um, to, to the scientific uh, information. But, yeah, it's been great for you to explain some of it to us this morning on Triple R. Yeah, great. Thanks, Kelly. And thanks, Dylan. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Many migrants who come to Australia to work have ageing parents overseas who they also have responsibilities for. There are parent visas available for this situation, which in theory allow Australians to bring older family members into the country to live. But wait times have blown out to somewhere between 12 and 40 years for this visa class. Up to 40 years is a long time to wait for anything, uh, but especially if you're over 60 years old waiting for a visa. Peter Mayers has had a close look at why the parent visa class is throwing up all sorts of challenges for Australia and Australians, and his paper, The Parent Conundrum, has been published by the Scanlon Foundation. Um, Peter is an independent writer and researcher. He's spoken to us many times. He's got a long-standing interest in migration and housing issues, and it's really great to have you back in at Triple R, Peter. Um, what what took you to this issue? Uh, well, I guess I have a long-standing interest in migration matters. Um, and I wrote a book about refugees back in 2000, 2001 it was published. And um, 
In researching that book, I, I went to a, a, a town hall meeting in the Knox Civic Centre uh, for a community consultation on the migration program. So Philip Ruddock was the immigration minister then, and, and he was a very active and lively and, and, and sort of tireless minister. And he did these annual consulta- consultations where he went around the country and talked to communities about, well, what should the migration program look like? Now, I went along thinking people are going to raise refugee issues because it was such a hot issue even before the Tampa but the big issue that people raised was parent visas way back then. The people, you know, people who'd migrated to Australia, overseas-born Australians saying, you know, we want to bring our, our parents to join us uh, in Australia. And back then you had something of a waiting list, but it was nothing like it is is now. So I guess I realised then the depth of feeling, the, the kind of intensity of this issue for in people's lives and I've kind of kept a bit of an eye on it ever since but then the Scanlon Foundation invited me to write one of their narratives they published a couple of these extended pieces of research slash journalism every year um, and uh, I said well how about I write about parent visas and they you know agreed and 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 the views in the paper are not Scanlon's views they're my views but Scanlon was keen to promote a public conversation on this really uh, tricky uh, issue for for of, of public policy. It's interesting that there was that level of community concern way back then, and as you say and outline in in this paper, it's got a lot worse kind of since two thousand. Yet across the media landscape, we tend to hear a lot more about Australia's humanitarian intake and and refugee visas and sort of the skilled migration scheme as well. Why haven't we heard a lot about parent migration visas? Well, I think if you if you followed SBS Hindi service or SBS Mandarin service, you would hear a lot of... And probably if you listen to some of the ethnic community radio stations, you'd hear a lot more about it. Um, uh, so there is coverage, um, but I guess the constituency is, uh, is, is not a mass one in a sense. Um, you know, the... the uh, it's it's a huge issue for a, a particular cohort of people mm. who are generally um, people who've migrated to Australia in the last, say, 10 to 20 years. And a lot of those people are coming to fill skills gaps and things like this. So there is complexity around, you know, why people are coming and then why they want to bring their parents as well. I mean, maybe tell us some of the stories that you uncovered when doing research on this. Yeah, piece. so I think what happens is, you know, people come to Australia, um, so we've seen a, a big surge in skilled migration in Australia and that's been paralleled or, or part of that has been a shift from temporary or from skilled to temporary migration or, or what we might call two-step migration. So often people come, you know, as international students or um, maybe as temporary skilled workers and then they settle in Australia. So it's often a kind of slow process. It's not like necessarily people think, oh, I'd like to migrate to Australia and um, I'd also like my parents to come because in 10 years I might have be married and have children and I want my parents to help with the children. It's more, it evolves um, um, uh, over time. People then find themselves, they're now settled in Australia, they've got an Australian grandchild or child and they think, well, I'd love my grandparents to be, my parents to be involved as grandparents. I'd love my child to learn from my grandparents about their culture, their language. Or it could be, you know, you've been living in Australia 10, 15, 20 years, your parents are just fine, then your father dies, your mother's left alone, she uh, has no other family members left uh, around her and you think, well, I, I want to bring my mother to care for her. And so people get into situations. I mean, one, one story I'll tell you is, is of Misuk. So Misuk, that's not her real name, but she didn't want her real name used. She came from South Korea as a skilled temporary migrant 
uh, and she thought um, she came with her husband and her 18-year-old daughter and she thought she'd be able to transition to permanent residency but she was too old because we have a big focus on youth in Australia. Anyway, while she was working in Australia at a high-paid kind of uh, tech job, her daughter went to university, qualified as a lawyer, got a job as a lawyer, became an Australian citizen. So Ms Hook is saying, well, now we want to stay in Australia with our daughter because she's settled here. She's been here since 2011, um, that Ms Hook has, uh, and, and more than a decade, and it's taking forever for her to apply for permanent residency. So she's living in this kind of limbo of uncertainty about when this visa will eventually come through. Yeah, and I mean, taking forever. I wonder if you can sort of talk to us about how the current parent migrant scheme works because it was illuminating to me. We've got sort of two different versions, one for people with money, one for people with, with lesser money, basically. <laughs> um, the cheaper version has a wait time of at least around sort of 30 years, whereas the more expensive one is at least 12 years. That's doesn't seem like a great system. No, I mean, the system has has become clogged up. So as you say, Dylan, yes, there are two visa categories. One's called a contributory parent visa, and it costs about $50,000 per parent. Um, and there's a whole lot of other conditions, like you have to have a certain income to sponsor your parent, and, and you have to meet the health conditions and various things. So it's going to cost you more than 50000 but let's say 50000 as a starting point. Um, and the reason it's called a contributory visa is the idea that the parents who are coming are contributing to the future costs they will impose on, on society through healthcare, aged care, things like that. Uh, but, but in essence, the $50,000 was a way of creating a fast track for people who could afford it. Mm. Um, and this was one of the ways in which the government, well, this was when I heard Philip Ruddick speak, he was trying to introduce this visa and he eventually got it in, in, in 2003. So it's been around 20 years, this visa, and initially it was a fast track. You could apply and within a couple of years your parents would be in Australia. But there's so much demand that this visa too has now got a, a waiting time of if you applied today, at least 12 years, possibly 15. Wow. Um, and, and the reason there's this waiting list is not because we're not processing them fast enough, it's because we limit the number we issue each year. So there's what's called capping and queuing. So we put a cap on the number of visas issued each year. Once those visas have been allocated, so um, this year it's uh, 7,000, everyone else who applies is put in a queue and processed over time. And so the queue just gets longer and longer. It's now 140,000. There's, there's, that's for both visa categories. There's another non-contributory visa that's a bit cheaper, but the waiting list is is much, much longer. And they only get 1,000 to 1,500 places a year. So, um, you know, if you, as Kalia said, if you're, you know, in your mid-60s applying to come and you're facing a 40-year waiting 40 list. 40 years. Yeah. Up to 40 years. That's a, yeah, that's the expert review of the migration program. They'll be getting a letter from the Queen King before they turn that's up, That's right. Well, and, and look, another tragic situation that can happen is you can have someone... So there are some people here on bridging visas who applied for the parent visa and they happen to be already in Australia living with their family. So they have no work rights. They have to have private medical insurance, all those sort of things while they wait. And they're also waiting this long amount of time. And what can happen is by the time they get their visa... So when they arrived, they passed all the health checks, etc. They were maybe 80. Then they get their visa actually processed and they're in their early 90s, let's say, or 90 or something, and they no longer meet the health requirements. So then they're, they're being told, well, you have to go back 
to India or England or South Africa or China or wherever it is. And the families are going, you can't send my mother away now. She's, she's 92. Yeah. She's 92. Yeah. She's blind. You know, we're looking after her. Yeah. Um, and so this then ends up being... Uh, then, then of course, the family will appeal the decision and it will go through various levels of appeal and take a whole lot of time. It's a complete mess and, and no minister wants to be the one who sends the 92-year-old grandmother back to China or wherever it is. So it's a, it's a real dilemma for government as well. I mean, I wouldn't want to be the immigration minister trying to work out how to sort this out because we have a migration program is based on skills and youth and parents don't fit into that category. Well, they're not even considered close family for the purposes of That's visa, right. are they? That's so this is interesting and it, it kind of begs the question of how committed are we to this parent visa and should it even exist if it really is, if it, if it plays out like this, Peter? Well, we're not committed to it. Yes, so parents were considered immediate family, close family through until the 1980s and then gradually we've through various administrative and other re- mechanisms and eventually a definitional change, we've bracketed them out so they're, they're not immediate family. So when we talk about family migration, we really mean partners. Normally it's just someone who's getting married or bringing their lifelong partner to Australia with them. That's the bulk of the family program. There's no cap and queue there. It can, can still take a while to get processed, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, but essentially you've got an absolute right to come and join your Australian partner in, in, in Australia. But with parents, there's no absolute right and we're not committed to it. But the government doesn't want to get rid of it because there's also key constituencies, you know, Australians, overseas-born Australians, often in marginal electorates, who want this very much. So government doesn't want to say an absolute no, but they also don't want to say, well, let's increase the numbers to meet demand because that would be twenty or 30,000 extra places to the migration program every year of old people who are going to eventually put stresses on the health system or, make, you know, need health services, aged care services. And you can imagine, you know, if, if say, the current government was to say, well, we're going to increase migration by 30,000 places and we're going to allow lots of people over 60 and you can imagine what fun Peter Dutton would have with that. Mm. Speaking with independent researcher and journalist Peter Mayers, all about a, a recent um, report and sort of the piece of, of journalism really he's produced for the Scanlon Foundation all into Australia's parent migration scheme and as you, you highlight there Peter, this is a really tricky issue for governments to deal with because of the, the burden that older people sort of place on health systems and, and, and the like as well. We have kind of tinkered with the parent migration scheme in recent years. There was a temporary migrant visa introduced in 2019, but you note in, in this work that that's been not entirely successful. Yeah, there's, there's a kind of middle path, I suppose, or there was an attempted compromise, if you like, and that is a, a temporary visa that allows parents to stay for um, up to 10 years, but it's temporary, so you, do, you don't get work rights, um, you don't get access to government services, etc. You have to maintain private medical insurance throughout this time. You have to renew the visa at least once, so it's granted for five years, up to five years, and then you renew. So you could stay for, for 10 years altogether. It's a very expensive, well, quite expensive visa. Um, it'll cost about $10,000 for the um, five years, and, and then uh, per person, uh, and so the government introduced this visa in 2019. They put a cap of 15,000 places a year, but hardly anyone is using it. So it doesn't seem to have met the demand. Mm. There are some people using it, but then they, you know, as you can imagine what happens, 
So one couple I, I talked to who've settled um, on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland to be close to their son and his family and you know who've been involved in their grandchildren's lives since they arrived um, they're now at the end of their approaching the end of their first five years but um, you know and and they're going to have to leave Australia for at least three months to renew the visa which is problematic and costly for them but they'll do it if need be and then there'll be another five years you know at the end of that 10-year period then they've got to kind of up stumps and go home again and they know that but it's kind of like, well, it's not really a, a really very good arrangement to have someone live in your country for 10 years and then say, well, piss off now, we've had enough of you. Um, and, and also you can imagine too, not in this particular case I'm talking about, but someone might be here for 10 years and at the end of 10 years actually they've got nowhere to go back to or mm. they've got a health problem that may, means they're quite vulnerable. And, and again, we're going to see appeals we're going to see family, so you can't really send, you know, a grandmother home now. It's it's a messy compromise; doesn't really work. So, is anyone in the world doing this well, Peter? <laughs> well, I mean, the United States is the one country. Uh, I, look, I looked at four other countries: Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and uh, four countries, including Australia. And the US is the only one where parents are still considered immediate family, and you have an absolute right. The US doesn't have the same kind of welfare system that we have and supports and so, you know, it's up to family to look after the parent who comes but there is that commitment to parents as as family. In Canada they have introduced a lottery so that they have, you know, 150,000 applications every year and they grant 20,000. So you've got about a one in seven, one in eight chance. So basically you put in an expression of interest they open, a, they open a, an expression of interest period for like two weeks and everyone's got to get their expressions of interest in then and then a few months later they sort of draw names from a hat and if you get lucky, you get in. Now, that's been proposed for Australia um, but the problem there is you, you're still creating this situation of uncertainty where people can't plan for the future and can't you know, organise their lives with any certainty. So I don't think that's a... In my view, we're better to to be honest with people and either we say, yes, parents are family, parents can come and we increase our migration program accordingly. I think there are strong ethical arguments for taking that position and I lay them out in detail. Politically, I don't think that's going to fly. So if, we're not, if, if the government isn't going to do that, then I think it should be honest to say, well, we don't have a permanent migration program for parents, but we'll think about how we could redesign a, a temporary multiple entry visa so parents can come and go spend time with their family at key moments birth of a child divorce um, marriage um, illness um, you know family celebrations things like that is i mean we, we tend to talk a lot about uh, at least at the political level migration in terms of economics and that sort of thing and there's good reason for that in terms of the, the burdens that might be placed on various services health systems and the like as well but we've also heard from this government that there's been a lot of emphasis on a, on a well-being budget and that kind of thing as well in terms of the approach to the parent migrant scheme i mean do we think enough about the broader kind of social community benefits that come from having parents in Australia and potentially even alleviating pressures on childcare and that sort of thing that parents can really play a, a productive role in? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good question. And of course, it's a much harder thing to measure. You, you can e- much more easily predict 
through actuarial processes and so on, the kind of likely, statistically likely costs of someone over 65 over the next 20, 30 years of their life in terms of aged care or, or um, you know, hospitals and so on. It's much harder to put a value on what does it mean for that family to have three generations in one place to pass on culture and language uh, and, and I think you know some a really um, uh, um, important question here is different types of migrants. Like, if you're from a refugee humanitarian background, then it may be even more important to have your parents here because they may be stuck in a refugee camp or in a vulnerable situation. You may be spending all your time trying to send money home to them and, and therefore your ability to settle is limited or, or your anxieties about them. So there are, there are particular cases, you might argue, where that extended, my, well, you know, um, third, three-generation migration is, is really, really important. Mm. But I think it is, you know, it is much harder to measure. And, and the other kind of question here is, you know, we, we, Australia targets skilled young migrants how did they become skilled young migrants? Um, you know, they grew up and, and, and they, they were brought up by their parents. And, and we forget that, that we're importing all that work that has been done by their parents and, uh, and sort of trying to cut them off and, and suggest that migrants don't have familial connections. And there's a, you know, kind of hard-ass argument, which is, well, they signed the contract, they agreed to come, they shouldn't expect to bring their parents too. But this is dismissing the very fabric of human lives in that we're interdependent creatures and we, we are cared for by our parents and then we care for our parents, ideally, as, as they age. And, and, you know, governments should really enable us to fulfil those obligations, those familial obligations. It should be something we should, are able to do. Um, and so this is, I think those are the kind of moral arguments mm. that are less easily measured in dollar and cents terms. And also, I mean, in the way that you express that, the investment in, in those young people, those young migrants, and that came from somewhere else and, that, and Australia gets the benefit of that. But then leaving the glimmer of hope there that they might be able to bring their parents should the need arise or should the circumstances change and their parent needed to come or they needed them to come for some reason leaving that alive seems like a almost like a cruelty for some if they're waiting 40 years for that so it's a really interesting area you you, you're amazing at picking these stories Peter (laughs) Uh, well I think that that's right it's this kind of anxiety that we're creating in people's lives and you might think well if if you see it's going to be a waiting list of 30 plus years why would you even bother applying but in fact people think well that can't be right or maybe it'll speed up, or maybe the government will change its views, or you know there'll be a, you, you know people hope Probably against be seventeen hope, right? governments between now and then. Well, anyway. that's true. <laughs> indeed. What, what do you think might come out of this kind of review of Australia's migration program that the government's been undertaking? Well, um, the government has focused first on skilled migration and addressing the abuses in temporary migration, and it's uh, you know I'm. I'm the government has been quite decisive. It's done things like create a pathway to citizenship for New Zealanders, which is, you know, I think a great thing. It's regularising the status of refugees on temporary protection visas so they can become permanent residents. Two really good things. It's introducing a raft of 
you know, it's looking to reform the, the, the temporary and skilled migration system so there's better pathways to permanent residence or greater clarity about who can become permanent and who can't because, again, we've got people in this kind of limbo land of across various visas over time. They're looking to introduce much greater penalties on employers who abuse temporary migrants. They're doing a range of things. Um, and they've said, we will address family migration down the track. Now, when they say family migration, well, the parent part is the big one and the hardest one for them. So they're looking at it. I know they're thinking about it. Um, uh, the, the expert review of the migration program suggested one option would be a lottery, as I talked about before. Another option would be to say we close these systems down. My own view, if, if I was to advise, the minister would be to say, put a, suspend any new applications for now uh, while you work out what to do. So, you know, at least say, OK, we're, we're not going to take any new applications until we decide what's a viable way forward mm. here because you're just adding to this endless queue and I think creating great heartache for people. And, and there are no simple solutions here. There's no, there's no easy way out. Thank you for looking at it, and I'm sure the government will be reading your paper. Um, Peter Mayers has been with us. The Parent Conundrum is the paper that he's contributed uh, to a Scanlon Foundation series, uh, and the subtitle is Considering Australia's Troubled Approach to Parent Migration, and it's always great to have you in at Triple R. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me on. Triple R. Book printing in Australia has faced challenges on a number of fronts over recent decades with digitisation and the rise of e-books together with international imports threatening the industry's future. Last month, two of the last remaining major book printers nationally became one. This has implications not only for the number of books able to be printed, but also the types of titles that tend to be commissioned with the promise of generating sales. Savannah Hollis is a writer and editor and has explored this issue for an article in Overland. And Savannah joins us now in studio. Welcome. Hi, how's it going? Really well, thanks. And this is a really sort of fascinating issue that I wasn't really across until reading your article. Can you kind of tell us about what's happened with the merger of two major book printers? Yeah, sure. So it was last year, not last, last year, month. Last year, sorry, yeah. Um, two kind of the, the last two major firms um, that kind of do large-run um, book printing in Australia. So there are a couple who do smaller print runs, but for the big publishers who are doing big print runs, the um, last two firms that do that kind of merged in the middle of last year. And... What that's kind of done is make it more difficult for uh, firms to kind of behave in a way we would normally expect in a market. So it's not technically a monopoly. The ACCC approved the merger, um, but only because one of the firms was going into liquidation. So it's really hard in Australia to have a robust printing market. And part of what my piece details is the history of the Australian printing market, which doesn't sound particularly interesting, <laughs> but is weirdly kind of quite varied. Um, there was a piece of legislation from the 60s that kind of ran into the 90s um, that subsidised that called the Book Bounty Program. So that subsidised production between anywhere in between like 25% to 7%. It kind of fluctuated over the life of the... Um, of the legislation. And that was to, to help support a national book printing industry. Yeah. So so at the end of the last uh, century, we had quite a robust printing industry. Um, there was a couple of, you know, large firms. There was uh, still larger firms and smaller firms, but, you know, we had that diversity and it meant that 
publishers can shop around, they can... uh, There's more ability to... uh, push prices down essentially so yeah. what we're what we're seeing is kind of uh an in- inability especially for smaller firms to kind of come to the table because there's only one firm that's setting prices mm. um so even though it's not a monopoly it sort of is a monopoly for for large print runs as you're talking about but it's essentially i mean this area in brunswick where we're, where triple r is based east brunswick had lots of print presses back back in the day and also with regards to newspapers every newspaper had its own print press no longer i mean we're seeing concentration in in where newspapers are printed and delivered now all of these sorts of things so if one print press goes down you don't get any <laughs> yeah and then and so when it comes to the book industry i i personally hadn't realized that it also hit the book industry that if this firm for whatever reason you can't get in their queue or if there's a, a technical issue and they can't run anything, you're, you're essentially beholden unless you go offshore. That's sort of the situation we're in. Yeah, exactly. And and the problem with going offshore is it's it's not as easy. It sounds like printing sounds like one of those things, you know, it's a non-perishable. We're not, you know, in a hurry to get it here. But really the way the publishing industry is structured, the deadlines are so tight and production schedules are so tight and so many books are coming out that bringing things in from overseas is not, you know, a super easy solution. It takes time. It is cheaper to print in China, especially. China has put a lot of money into developing their capital to have a really robust domestic printing industry. But there's there's also other mitigations of, like, uh, one publisher I spoke to for this article was talking about a new system of censorship that they've brought in. So there has always been some level of censorship when printing in China but it has been apparently according to this publisher I spoke to at the discretion of the printing company of they kind of know the rules and they apply them that way but then the new system is to do with having a government official actually reviewing everything that comes through and reviewing everything that's um, being printed so we have that level of we can't move all our um, domestic printing offshore because everything we print here is not, you know, I, the publisher I was speaking to had had things bounce back. That's it's amazing. Not, yeah, that was yeah. the most uh, revealing part of your article to me that there's potentially this kind of censorship happening. And also, I guess, I imagine indirect censorship as well, where there might be certain titles put to the publisher, the printer, I should say, because they think they're more likely to get through and then you're sort of – that has a ripple effect, I suppose, in what kinds of stories get told. Yeah, it's unclear, like, to, to the extent at which that extends, mm. but it, it's really worrying. And, it, and it's not like domestic printing now. It's not, you know, this contrast between, oh, we have really um, – we can say whatever we want here, but – it's really expensive and then overseas it's really cheap but we have to mitigate what we say. We're being – there's a level of censorship um, domestically as well because of, yeah, as you were saying, like indirect price factors. Mm. Um, One of the publishers I was speaking to also said that the the rise in prices that we've seen domestically in printing um, was changing the sort of content they were choosing to publish. Which is really, really concerning if we, you know, want a robust domestic art scene. 
we, we can't be operating under, oh, well, this isn't going to make us as much money as this other thing, yeah. so we need to... So yeah. what kinds of books might be more likely to get published in consideration of that? Well, so there's this idea that um, Angela Meyer in... Um, she did a report for book people. She kind of... There's a brief mention of one bookseller talking about um, this trend towards books that are supposed to be read once in a seasonal period and then kind of thrown away. Mm. And that kind of fits in with, I think, what we can see when we look at the kind of books that are coming out. It's books that are written by people who are, you know, in the in the culture of zeitgeist for a moment. You know, we've got TikTokers publishing books. We've got, you know, celebrity figures who are popular for a moment publishing books. And they sell really well and they sell... You can do really high print runs once and then sell them off really quickly um, instead of something like, you know, um, Kafka. Kafka's initial print run was like 700 books <laughs> and then stayed, has stayed in publication for 100 yeah. years. Um, but, yeah, I think we're, we're seeing a trend towards that sort of... Well, it's interesting. I mean, we're speaking with Savannah Hollis, who's written an article that's really um, focused in on printing problems uh, for actually getting books physically printed in Australia with the concentration of the print market coming down to really one big player with, with lots of little um, printers around the place still and it's impacting the kinds of books we see. And I guess there's room for everyone in a healthy cultural environment. Um, what it sounds like you're saying is that there's challenges around certain kinds of books getting published if we don't have uh, much flexibility in where they can get published and they're not going to fly offshore to get published there. So, I mean, when you look at the cultural policies that are getting put forward from the current federal government, are you seeing it might start to resolve some of these issues or is it pretty um, early days, I guess, with regards to the merger that's happened in publishing to bring this about? Well, I think... A lot of what we saw with, you know, there was the big arts funding announcement, I think, last year. Um, and what that looked at a lot of was giving funding directly to organisations, which is great. I'm not trying to come on here and be like, no, no funding for arts <laughs> organisations. That would be damning for me. Um, but I think what it's indicative of is like a very isolated view of what the arts are. We put our funding towards, you know, the separate... Arts organisations, they live in a little bubble. Arts are important, sure, you know. They're cultural, whatever. Um, but I think we need to expand our, our view of how the arts function in the economy. They're a really huge part of our economy. They provide a lot of jobs, um, which is obviously not the only reason they're important. But when we're funding them, we need to look at infrastructure. We need to look at um, the supply chains that allow us to distribute our works. I, I suppose, I mean, if you think about it, even in, with musicians over, when you get venues closing, you yeah. can fund yeah. musicians, but if there's no venues to play and then it starts to be difficult to attract audience or if streaming platforms take over and there's not many, like, and I guess, what, you know, that happens with books as well. And I, I, I imagine because it's such old technology, the idea that all of a sudden it's not there <laughs> it's yeah. not a print press. It's 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 quite amazing. Yeah, it's so it's so odd, and I think, yeah, we really need to conceptualise that the the supply chains are really important and really uh, 
really hard to fund in a robust way because it's funding in lots of different, you know, a subsidy on book production domestically is such a uniquely niche issue that to engage with it is is really hard in a yeah. like political way because we're we're going right down to the the granular sort of things. Um, well, I guess with car manufacturer, uh, uh, the government, even though it wasn't invisible, it was very visible, still chose not to fund it. So yeah. uh, I was thinking yeah. also <laughs> about sort of any parallels with uh, sort of vinyl records and mm-hmm. how there's been, um, you know, sort of in Australia, a number of companies who have started up over sort of recent years, recent decades and the like with people being much more into that more bespoke technology, I guess. Um, I mean, this is a bit of it that goes outside the parameters of what your article was focused on. But mm-hmm. do you see that there is a really strong appetite for printed books these days where there are opportunities for even more sort of local, sort of smaller scale book printers? Yeah, I I think there is a real hunger, especially for physical media. Mm. Um, there was, when I posted the article, or when Overland posted the article, there was one person who was like, oh, this is such a shame. I, I love turning pages. Like, yeah. I, I don't like ebooks. And I think that's a bit of a misconception that's held over from, like, the introduction of ebooks and e-readers. Um, m- m- most people, um, th- there is less price elasticity on uh, physical books than we would assume, um, or maybe more price elasticity. My year 12 economics is... <laughs> I can't help you there, ago. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically, yeah, we we really yearn for that sort of stuff. Um, there, there's some really great articles out there about how ebooks didn't take over, mm. how that a few years ago we were all expecting ebooks to really come and sweep and bookstores were going to be closing down and it just didn't happen. And that is because there is that real strong desire for physical media. Um, and I, I, th- I think maybe I'm biased because I, I also work at like a small publisher, but like I think there is also a desire for local content as mm. well that reflects stories um, that, that really fit in that minutiae and that local sort of, yeah, yeah. themes. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in and telling us about it. Savannah Hollis uh, has, uh, based here in Melbourne, um, writer and editor and writing about an an issue that is very niche but potentially has really large implications for Australia's book publishing industry and that is merger for the big actual printers for books Uh, and now what? Uh, There's a whole lot of issues there that you can read in more detail in Overland where uh, Savannah has published an article that goes into this in detail. Thanks so much for coming to Triple R. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.